0: Welcome to my podcast, Musings of a Christian Philosopher, where we talk about deep and often challenging topics of theology and philosophy. I'm your host, Adam Polstra. Let's get started. Good day, listeners. What I've had in my mind lately is the question of whether or not society is changed from the bottom up or from the top down. Of course, a lot of people, including the religious, uh, Christians, Catholics, and so on, tend to believe that society is transformed from the top down. It seems like the most logical, consistent idea, at first blush at least, you look at politicians changing the laws, affecting how society behaves almost at the stroke of a pen or you could look at the older world if you're on the western hemisphere or probably even current world depending on where you're at kings kings make an edict or command or whatever it might be and society has to adjust accordingly or you could even look at god based on some interpretations of god and believe or see that he, from the very highest place, uh, created things, altered th- alters things, causes things in a spiritual realm, and it changes people not just because they have to adjust to some law, but perhaps even imperceptibly from within. So it would seem very reasonable to expect that societal change comes from the top down. Now the first and most obvious issue with that theory comes in when you are talking about God in particular, especially of course, God as I believe He is, the Christian, in the Christian sense. What we read in the scriptures about God's activities does not emphasize a top-down approach. What I mean by that is not that God doesn't allow for us to have a sort of top-down approach, the setting up of governments and monarchies and that sort of a thing. What I'm talking about is that God himself does not claim to work from the top down. He always starts at the basic level. If you want to look at Israel, he started with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And that gradually built into a large family, which then built into an entire nation. Or if you look through the prophets or the preachers of the New Testament, what it's constantly talking about is God's concern for individuals. It's God's concern for the simple people, the invisible people. Now, of course, you could start talking about very big characters throughout the course of scripture, such as Sorry, not Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob already mentioned, but David, Samuel, Daniel, or in the New Testament you have Paul, Peter, etc. But even those people, some of them didn't really have much power in and of themselves, particularly in the New Testament, and those that were very powerful in the Old Testament did not start out that way. And you could say, yes, that Joseph... When he took over or quasi took over is Egypt that he was able to change the entire course of a nation, and that's absolutely absolutely true, but the man who became the Joseph who was second in command of Egypt did not start out in prominence see part of the idea of this trickle down or top down approach to societal change is um changes comes from or brings in another assumption. That those who start from the top, i.e. the children of presidents or of kings, are inevitably going to have a massive effect on an entire society. I suppose that's possible, but unless they've been brought up in consistency with the simple things, by which I mean... They have integrity, they have responsibility, they understand how to take care of very basic needs, very basic things. If they have not been brought up in goodness, virtue, and integrity, very likely they're going to either degrade their entire nation or lose it all outright. You could take, for example, the stories of Daniel, where he influenced king after king in positive ways, but those kings never really repented to God of their essentially rebellion. And David was a cog in that, in that uh, direction, if you wish to put it that way. And not only did the sons of those kings not inherit their kingdoms, but, or, sorry, not inherit them for very long, They were often killed, usurped, and then somebody else took their place who typically did not honor God either, and then they lost the kingdom right after them. The children of politicians and kings and so on might at least temporarily have some of the power that they had, but not for long, in many, many cases. Anyways, I don't wish to belabor that point too much. My main point is, again, that God does not claim to work primarily through authority structures. He doesn't claim to work through presidents and kings, at least not in his emphasis. He certainly does do that, and in certain cases, such as, um, let's see, I'm trying to think of the name of this particular king. Um, I think it was Cyrus. God specifically does say that he is working something through such and such a person. Nebuchadnezzar even, though neither of them to my knowledge, was particularly loyal to God. But when God is talking about his own influence in the world, how he operates, where he particularly works, he's talking primarily about the abandoned, children, mothers and children, simple people doing their simple labor throughout the days. In fact, if you read enough scripture and understand God's approach, he seems sometimes to care and devote a great deal more attention attention to people whose names we do not know. Now again, you could draw an exception with David, but not really, because David was just such an obscure person for a very long time and uh, before he became a king at all. Now, observing how society actually tends to change, once again, it's very easy to essentially focus on the Ring of Power, if you will. And by the Ring of Power, I'm, I am of course referring to the Lord of the Rings, where Sauron was essentially able to dominate the entirety of the world through the individual Rings of Power that were made, and he secretly makes the final Ring of Power, that dominates them all. It's easy for us to think that that is where the change in society really comes from, primarily because it's big, it's powerful, it's flashy, it's intimidating. Now, of course, it's from the same set of books that we get the quote from the wizard Gandalf, where he talks about a dispute between the other wizard Saruman and himself. This is before Saruman had turned towards Sauron. And he points out that Saruman believes that the world is tilted on the big cogs, the people in charge, the powers that be. And Gandalf himself claims to disagree with that, saying that he believes that it is is the simple acts of kindness and generosity of regular people, unknown people, in their daily labors that the world turns based upon. Now, Let's look first at the organization of an honest society, a moral society. How does it build up? When you are honest and kind and good, you facilitate quite a number of things that, in the long run, don't just produce health and happiness, but they also produce wealth. If you are kind and trustworthy... If you keep your word, not just to fellow adults, but even to children. If you have integrity, people are going to be willing to trust you with resources. People are going to be willing to trust you even with people. Perhaps helping raise one another's children, or at least watch them while you're, du- while you're gone, that sort of thing. If you build up an, a, a society that has a number of virtuous things built into its structure, People are willing to work together even without pay, to do services work for one another voluntarily instead of asking for payment. But then when it comes to matters of income and resources, when somebody is need, is in need, if they have lived in a good way, the others are going to be willing to help them out, to give them a leg up. And such people, of course, temporarily at least, are probably not going to be very productive members of society. But, of course, if they were able to not just be productive members of society, but specifically meaning by that, that the profits that they bring to society outweighs the costs, then the fact that those other members of society are going to be willing to help them rise out of their poverty or their trouble or whatever means that they may very well and probably will be able to come back and become, again, a productive member of society. And this is going deeper than just making money. Money is merely a representation of the products and services that that are available in a society. And inflation, by the way, is the measure of the money supply to the products and services in a nation. So what I'm getting at is that when you have more productive members of society, which is going to increase for a number of reasons, when you have mutual trust, and I'll get a little bit further into that when I start talking about a corrupt society, then the literal products and services in that nation are going to begin to rise. And I don't just mean nation, I mean starting, of course, on the local level in your town, in your village, in your city. And then, of course, that's going to actually increase the value of the money in that society. What do I mean by that? A really easy way to view inflation is you have $2 to two oranges. Well, if you have $2 to two oranges, then it's going to be $1 per one orange. Now, let's say that you have $2 to four oranges. Well, now it's going to be 50 cents per orange. Again, the measure of products and services available in the nation is a direct reflection or directly reflects with the amount of money supply in a nation. So if you have more products and services, the money that you have, if it has not changed, is going to buy more product or service. And looking at it the other way, and this is the source of upward inflation, or inflation, deflation is the opposite of that. If you have $4 to two oranges, each orange is $2. Now, of course, that is an oversimplified analogy, and I totally understand that, but at the very basic level, that is how things go. So if you have built trust in a society through virtue and integrity, if people trust you with their things, if people are willing and able to lend to one another Perhaps for the starting of a new business, the starting of a new venture. Even the kid around the neighborhood wants to begin mowing lawns, but his dad, his dad's mower is on the fritz at the moment, so would it be okay if he borrows a neighbor? Sure, as long as you keep it fueled up. And he's able to continue that business going, which is a service. Then he is going to be making income on the basis of his service with a lent mower until his dads can get back up to working. And if the dad is also a man of integrity and trustworthiness, he will see to it that the mower is fixed so that his son can continue to run his little business. Or maybe if it's part of the business, uh, business agreement, the son is the one who then makes the money to repair the mower so that he can continue running his business. Anyway, and that is, by the way, raising the value of the money, granted, in a nation as large as America, by a very minuscule degree, but nevertheless, his service being added to the economy is, to a very small degree, raising the value of money. So, if then, that society, let's say again, let's go back to considering it as a young society, is being built on integrity, honesty, trustworthiness, and so on, then, In order to achieve power in that nation, it is the most profitable to be trustworthy and have integrity. Why? Because people understand, have a paradigm of, the gain of resources and the gain of the ability to make money and make products and services on the basis of integrity and goodness. So in this case... This is sort of a opposite ring of power, if you will, sort of analogy. Goodness is the way to win in that society. So then the people in charge of that society will not just be expected to, but will expect themselves to act with integrity and goodness in order to deserve, in order to be able to obtain a level of power and influence over the people in that society. If, of course, he begins to do otherwise, in a society where relationships are healthy, people are ha- have mutual trust with one another, if the person in charge begins to act, especially in a democratic republic like America, begins to act disingenuously, then the people are not going to trust him and they're going to get him out of office forthwith. So in order to win in a society of goodness, you have to be good. And integrity and goodness will be the um, basis upon which you achieve any level of influence and authority in that environment. Now, of course, in such a fledgling society, that if it has integrity, will be making a great deal of resources, products and services, raising the value of their money. If you are disingenuous, violent, cruel. If you don't operate off of a win-win sort of environment that integrity and virtue produces, but rather out of a win-lose environment, wherein you have to take advantage of another person in order to gain resources, such a fledgling society cannot sustain that. And they will have to essentially remove you, whether that be prison or the death penalty or something like that. In other words, what I'm getting at is that in such a society, the wicked people, evil people, can't even hope to rise very far at all, simply because there's not enough resources to go around. If you begin to take in a society of generosity and trust, that wound, that problem, is going to be much more easily found out and removed. For the simple reason that there's not enough yet. And as such a process continues to grow, and people are at least virtuous in the sense that they are productive, in the sense that they are responsible with their labors, and they continue to build a good society, or at least a healthy society, then the power that is involved in becoming one of the authorities, one of the lawmakers, if you will, or at least law keepers, such as a policeman, will continue to go up also. It will be more profitable. It will gain you more prestige because, of course, your particular responsibility is to keep that society going in the way that it is. But simultaneously, as that society begins to gain more and more resources, the capacity to essentially ignore corrupt people also increases. So, if in the midst of such a society... People who abuse their children, who take advantage of each other, who find more and more clever ways to gain resources by spreading guilt around. And in a a moral society, this is, by the way, very easy to do. Well, maybe not necessarily a moral society, but a religious society. It's very easy to do, because all you have to do is learn how to use the religious language to try to throw mud on other people who, if if they are very militantly trying to be good people, might just buy it and believe that they are, in fact, bad. And what is the advantage of doing that? That they will serve you, that they will serve your interests. If you can make them feel guilty, then they might just do what you ask, whatever you ask, because, of course, they can't possibly bear being at least considered to be a bad person or believing it themselves. So they'll do whatever they can to make up for it. And the reason I belabor that point a little bit is because this is a much more pernicious and subtle form of the win-lose situation. But another form of the win-lose situation is pillaging. Take the Vikings, for example. They go in, they take of the resources of people who've probably developed that little village or whatever it might be through mutual bonds of trust and integrity, and they take the food, they take the women, they kill the children and the men, and gain resources through that means. In a society that has built up enough resources, enough wealth, it is going to increasingly be easy to essentially sustain and manage the wounds that come out of corrupt people growing up in that society. If they grow up with the idea that you do not win unless you take advantage of others, which is probably going to come through in an abusive parent situation, where the parent continues to gain servitude from their spouse through causing, forcing them to submit, forcing them to believe that they're the guilty party, or simply being violent, whether verbally or physically or both. A child growing up in that system, unless they wake up from it, is going to have the paradigm that you win through causing others to lose. You're going to win through hurting others. Now, of course, it's very possible for the child to awaken from that and become moral and live in a, in a sense of integrity and trust. But it's certainly not definite. And if the society around them is very healthy, it's very much more likely. If the, if the society around them, and I'm talking in their immediate vicinity, is corrupt, then it's going to be very difficult for them to wake up and be virtuous and have integrity. And in fact, the more that this kind of festering wound grows in a society the harder and harder it is even to be virtuous why because that has flipped gains in society from being earned and gain- and accumulated from being sorry from being gained through integrity and virtue to being gained through pillaging taking advantage of others reducing the productivity of others and forcing them to give you whatever it is that they do have and it might not just be food and shelter and that sort of thing. It might be loyalty. It might be relationship. It might be forcing them to make you at least feel better while you make them feel worse. At a very basic level, that's what the word abuse means in my vocabulary, or at least the way that I typically use the word. Anyway, and if that kind of a society begins to fester and grow and um, metastasize in a nation or in a society, then the ring of power, the authority structure, what it takes to be a lawmaker in that sort of society is going to also be through corruption, abuse, distrust of others, the win-lose system. It takes, what I'm trying to argue here is that it takes corruption to produce a society where sociopaths are in charge. Without that, if it is a land of integrity and trust, then the person that nobody trusts is not going to rise to the top. But if the society has become so corrupted that everybody buys the idea that you have to win over others causing them to lose in order to gain resources, then of course some the most corrupt of us becomes the people in charge. Why? Because they're the best at it. Because they are the best at taking advantage of other people. They are the best, for example, at... Administering war over foreign peoples, perhaps through religious rhetoric, calling the other people infidels, for example, or some quasi religious system where the other people are of another race, so therefore they must be destroyed, or the other people are intolerant, so they must be destroyed, or at least treated as pariahs treated as the true decay of of society so we must destroy them which if you think about it is a contradictory position the rot of a society has to begin at the basic level because of course in order for there to be anybody in charge there has to be people to take charge of If there is only, say, one family's worth of people in a society, there's only so much authority to go around it all. If there are more and more people, then in order for somebody, or sorry, it makes much more sense for power in the sense of influence to centralize. If that society has been built on integrity and virtue, then the people in charge have to have integrity and virtue even to be trusted by the people beneath them in the sense of authority, right? I don't mean beneath them as the value of the person, but rather as simply the authority, the hierarchy structure. If that society has been built on pillaging and murdering and raping, then the person in charge is simply going to be the best at it. Again, it may be subtle, it may be through some sort of religious or political rhetoric, but they're going to be, whatever method they use, the best at doing so. The ring of power rises based on the behavior of the people at the lower levels. Now, I could probably come back to this argument later once I've thought it out more and have found better ways of describing it. But for now, I'm going to leave that behind and now focus on the individual level and how this holds true there too. So on the individual level, let's just look at a family. Husband and wife are looking to start a family and they consider the most important thing is having resources, having power, having influence in their society. If they are of a higher caste or a higher class, they win. Now, if they live their lives through that sort of a paradigm and have children, then a number of things are going to take place. First of all, of course, because they will be chasing money and power, they're not going to be spending very much time with one another. They're not going to bond very well with between spouse or with children. Trust breaks down. Integrity diminishes. Why? Because they don't trust each other. If you do not trust each other, how can you practice integrity? Le, you know, leave behind making promises to each other. How about talking in the first place? Husband treats wife more and more with suspicion or just with annoyance at her continuous requests for time with the family. Or she, if she is corrupt, he has very good reason to be suspicious of her, because as their bond breaks down, she might seek affection from, you guessed it, other men. And that breaks down. Children are, in that sort of a environment, not going to build trust, with their parents, they're going to have more and more of an idea that in order to gain, you must have power. Of course, because that's exactly what their parents are doing. And specifically, you must have power over other people, and you must have resources. Now, that is an example, and granted a very extreme example, of a top-down idea, paradigm, of how the family structure should work. And because nobody trusts one another, it specifically breaks it down, it corrupts it, it ruins it. It causes people to not be able to form healthy bonds and relationships with one another. Now on the other hand, while of course it is important universally for people to have resources, For people to have influence and responsibility and authority to a certain extent. If a family is developed where these are considered necessary but not sufficient. They're there, they exist, they are important in their own ways, but the important stuff is the simple stuff. The important stuff is, for example... If you keep your word to your children. If you keep your word to each other. If you are affectionate and kind to one another. If you focus your time on building bonds with each other. Having fun together when you can. Building love. and respect in the family. If that is the case, stress is not going to be a big issue. Anxiety is not going to be a big issue. Every member of the family is going to have a much easier time exerting ambition, rising up in their community, forming healthy relationships with their neighbors, with their friends, with their community, perhaps at church, Heck, even at the stores. If you have a healthy and happy demeanor, going to restaurants, especially if you go to the same ones over and over again, going to the same markets, eventually people are going to get to know you. They're going to like you. And you even get little perks every once in a while. Oh, you get a discount this time because you're a regular. And in addition, they like you. (laughs) If you're a regular and they don't like you, you're not getting the freaking discount. (laughs) No way. But what I'm trying to get at here is that if you focus on the simple and small things, the child wants to play. The parent's not too busy. The parent, in fact, has a paradigm, a structure of priorities that says it is more important to nurture relationship with the children. So unless, of course, they are actually occupied with something that they need to remain occupied with, Of course I'll come play with you. The mother is not occupied with trying to build more resources for the family. She doesn't send her children off to daycares or to nannies. She herself, personally, builds up the values in the family, nurtures her children, breastfeeds the babies, which, by the way, science science and research has shown us, that increases IQ, that increases the ability to bond with other human beings. It increases empathy. You can look up the research. And granted, I'm not presenting the research myself at the moment, but I trust the people who told me these things because they do do the research. Anyways, if such a family builds things on the basis of the more important things. At least what they consider the more important things, which I would agree with. Trust, love, affection, bonds. Rather than chasing the rings of power, what they in fact obtain in the long run is power. It is authority. It is good responsibility. It is the greater absence of sickness. Anxiety and stress lowers immune systems, and we stay healthier longer, and even when we get sick, we stay sick for a very short time by comparison. The benefits that build from love and integrity and goodness are really very difficult to calculate. It's kind of like trying to measure the difference between exercising and not exercising. Exercise within healthy limits, right? You don't want to abuse your body, but you want to keep it healthy. Comparing that to simply not exercising, taking your goods now, sitting on the couch, watching television, they are, in fact, incalculable. Why? Because the amount of benefits you get from exercising as opposed to not exercising are so very many. Now, they may be subtle, they may be small, but they are many. Again, that too lowers stress and anxiety, builds up immunity, increases your ability to do physical things, which is also going to reduce depression because you don't have to be sedentary in your life. But anyways, I don't want to spend too long on that. It's simply a comparable analogy to living with integrity and trust and love. And living with healthy responsibility. One of those responsibilities very well will be keeping yourself healthy. Why would you want to keep yourself healthy? So that you can continue to pay good and strong attention to the important things The simple things. You build that up. You remain consistent, which is integrity. You are going to build the health, not just of your family, including your children, but through that, build up the health of your entire community, which then will build up the health of your entire town or village, and build up the integrity and goodness and health of an entire Society. In America, in particular, this should be more obvious than anything else. We want to believe, some of us, that society is turned on the basis of the politicians and their decisions. Many people find very clever ways around that because they are already in a sort of rebellion. But those very politicians Those people in power, and this, by the way, is true across all societies, are only a reflection of ourselves. And again, as I said earlier, it's more obvious than otherwise in America. Why? Because we're the ones who vote them in. If our society has been built around a win-lose situation where we only gain resources by taking them from other people, Then the people that we're going to vote for are the people that we're comfortable with. Of course. And the people we're comfortable with are going to be the people who win, who win over other people the most effectively. On the other hand, if our society has been built out of integrity and trust, then who we vote for are going to be the people who we're the most comfortable with. People who build trust. And healthy bonds and love and affection in their society. In my mind there is no way around it. Culture has always been built from the bottom up. So many people in today's world want to try to abolish things like abortion and drug use and so on by changing the laws. Now, I think that that effort is important and I want it to be fought. Particularly in places like America where our votes can change the form of those things. However, we could change those laws on a dime, perhaps, tomorrow. Let's just say hypothetically that that was possible. Okay, we still have a society where people are addicted to drugs. We still have a society where people go around Producing children that nobody wants, including them, so they choose to abort them. We have changed the laws without changing society. What's going to happen? People are simply going to continue those things illicitly. Now you may say, but if we can change the laws, then people have to change their behavior. To some extent. But I just went through explaining how on the basis of how we have structured our society from the individual cellular level, changes even how the rings of power rise to their effect. If that has not been shifted, then returning, maybe gradually, maybe immediately, will be the corrupt structure. People will rebel more against good laws if we have done nothing to change the society. If we focus at least on the basic cells of society first, then change the laws, the laws will be welcome. My opinion is that we should do both. The greater force of our resources and efforts and time should be spent on the basics. Then and only then can the changes on the higher levels where the rings of power are have any lasting effect. We need society to be structured on win-wins. We need society to be structured on trust. If that has not shifted, what can a law do? So with that, for now, that's my thoughts for today. I may come back at this another time when hopefully I can make a better case of it. Hope you found it interesting in any case. Signing off for now.